This audio lecture is based entirely upon the casebook Open Source Property by Stephen Clowney, James Grimmelman, Michael Grinberg, Jeremy Sheff, and Rebecca Tushnet. The casebook is licensed Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial 4.0 International. That means that the author has allowed everyone to copy and redistribute the material in any medium or format, and remix, transform, and build upon the material as long as users give appropriate credit, don't use the material for commercial purposes, and redistribute contributions under the same license. Much thanks is due to the authors for writing this book and providing it to everyone for free. In furtherance of this spirit and in compliance with the original license, I also license this audio lecture as Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial 4.0 International. I hope you enjoy. Welcome, everybody, to the Property Lectures. This is part three. In this lecture, we'll be talking about interests. To this point, we have largely been conceiving the subject of property law as a physical thing, like a plot of land, a jewel, an animal, or an intangible concept that we can treat like a thing, like a trademark. But typically, property does not confer ownership of a thing. Rather, it confers ownership of a particular interest in a thing. While in lay conversation and informal contexts, it might be perfectly acceptable to say you own a plot of land. To be precise, you would have to say that you own a legal interest in that plot of land. This being most likely a legal estate, we will come to know as a fee, simple, absolute. The conceptual separation between legal interests in a valuable physical or intangible resource and the resource itself allows lawyers to structure a diverse array of legal relations regarding the possession, use, disposition, and control of such resources. Interests can be divided up among multiple people at the same time, or among a succession of people over time, or any combination thereof allowing for subtle control of and deep predictability about the rights of all interested parties in particular resources. In this part, we will explore the legal tools and concepts that make such arrangements possible. Now moving to estates and future interests. 
To begin understanding how the law divides up interests in land over time, we begin with the fundamental distinction between possessory estates and future interests. A possessory estate is a legal interest that confers on its owner the right to present possession of some thing. A future interest is a legal interest that exists in the present but does not entitle the owner to possession until some point in the future. This may sound confusing, but you are probably already familiar with an arrangement that follows this pattern, a lease. A lease is a transaction in which the landlord gives the tenant a possessory estate, a leasehold estate, and retains a future interest, the right to retake possession after the lease term ends. This retained future interest, an unqualified right to future possession retained by the party who created the possessory interest that precedes it, is called a reversion. Landlord-tenant relationships are obviously more complicated than this. They entail a number of contractual rights and obligations and are heavily regulated by statutory and decisional law and, in many cases, administrative codes. The idea that both landlord and tenant can have legal interests in the same parcel of land at the same time, even though only one of them has the right to possess the land at any given time, is a good introduction to the concept of future interests. If you think about it, you will probably recognize that the basic idea of a lease implies certain rights and powers of a landlord in the leased premises, even during the term of the lease. The most important right is the reversionary right itself, the right to take possession at some point in the future. That's a right the tenant can't take away, even while the tenant has the right to possession. The landlord might be interested in selling or mortgaging his reversionary right, even before the lease ends. And if she does sell or mortgage her interest, which she may, subject to the tenant's interest, the thing sold is not the property. It is the landlord's reversion, a legal interest in real property that exists in the present but will not entitle its holder to possession of that real property until some point in the future. When learning about estates and future interests, we will follow some conventions that will simplify our discussion as much as possible. Most of our problems will involve an owner of land transferring some interest in that land to one or more other parties. Following long-standing tradition in the study of Anglo-American property law, we will refer to the parcel of land in question as Black Acre or White Acre or Green Acre if more than one parcel is at issue. 
we will refer to the original owner as O and the other parties as A, B, C, etc. In addition, there are a variety of technical terms that arise, a few of which you should be familiar with. A grant or conveyance is a transfer of an interest in property. The person making the grant is the grantor or transferor. The person receiving the grant is the grantee or transferee. If the grant is made during the life of the grantor, it is said to be an inter vivos conveyance, literally, between the living. If in a will, it is said to be a testamentary conveyance. A testamentary conveyance of real property is called a devise. A testamentary conveyance of personal property is called a bequest or sometimes a legacy. When a person dies, they will either have left a valid will or not. A person who dies with a valid will dies testate. One who dies without a valid will dies intestate. Either way, the dead person can be referred to as a decedent. If the decedent did leave a valid will, they may also be referred to as a testator, if male, or a testatrix, if female. The assets that a decedent owned at her death are collectively referred to as the decedent's estate. An estate can sometimes take on the qualities of a legal person. It is not uncommon to say that a certain asset is owned by the estate of O. The property rights of this fictional legal person are managed by an actual person whose title depends on whether the decedent left a will. The instructions in a will are carried out by an executor, designated as such in the will itself. An intestate estate is disposed of by a court-appointed administrator. In some jurisdictions, these titles are subject to binary gender distinctions. A female executor may be referred to as an executrix, and a female administrator as an administratrix. The authority of an administrator or executor to dispose of the estate's assets is conferred by a probate court. When a valid will is filed with the probate court and deemed valid, the court will admit the will to probate, or probate the will, and will issue letters testamentary to the executor authorizing him to take possession of the estate's assets and dispose of them according to the will's instructions. If the decedent died intestate, the court will issue letters of administration to an administrator authorizing him to take possession of the estate's assets and dispose of them according to the laws of intestate succession. If the decedent did leave a valid will, 
It will typically contain instructions for transferring assets to various identified people or entities. The parties receiving the bequests are referred to as the will's beneficiaries, devisees for real property, or legatees for personal property. When a decedent passes property by will, he or she is said to have devised that property. A property interest that the decedent has the power to transfer by will is said to be divisible or divisible. Sometimes a will fails to provide instructions for all the assets owned by the testator at death. In this case, the unallocated assets are said to create a partial intestacy. When this happens, assets designated in the will are distributed according to the will's terms, while the estate's remaining assets are distributed according to the laws of intestate succession. In order to avoid partial intestacy, it is good practice to include a residuary clause in a will, disposing of all the assets of the decedent not designated in specific bequests. Such unenumerated assets are referred to as the residuary estate. If the decedent did not leave a valid will, her property will pass to her heirs, sometimes referred to as heirs at law. Heirs are those who are designated by law as successors to property that passes by intestate succession rather than by will. When heirs take such property, they are said to inherit it. A property interest that can pass by intestate succession is said to be descendable. Note that until the decedent actually dies, we don't know who her heirs are. Rights of inheritance are allocated only to relatives of the decedent who survive her, who are still alive when the decedent dies. Thus, until a property owner dies, her relatives have no legally enforceable rights in her property under the laws of intestate succession. It is sometimes said that such relatives have a mere expectancy, and they are sometimes referred to as heirs apparent. But neither title gives them any enforceable interest in property. Similarly, because a will can always be changed by the testator prior to their death, the beneficiaries of a will have no legally enforceable rights in a testator's property until the testator dies. They too are sometimes said to have a mere unenforceable expectancy. Heirs under intestacy laws are drawn from various categories of relatives. In addition to spouses, there are issue, the direct descendants of the decedent, that is children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren. Ancestors, that is parents, grandparents, great-grandparents. And collaterals, that is relatives who are not direct ancestors or descendants, like siblings, aunts, uncles, nieces, nephews, 
cousins. If a person dies without a will and without any heirs at law, any property in their estate is cheats to the state, which becomes its owner. Now moving to basic estates and future interests. We will begin by examining two possessory estates, the fee simple absolute and the life estate, and two future interests, one of which you have already encountered, the reversion and the remainder. Now moving to the fee simple absolute. The fee simple absolute is the most complete interest in land that the law will recognize. When we say that O owns Blackacre without any further qualification, what we actually mean is that O owns a presently possessory fee simple absolute in Blackacre. The key distinguishing characteristic of the fee simple absolute is that it has no inherent end. It is in a state of indefinite duration. It is descendable, divisible, and alienable inter vivos, so it can be transferred to a new owner, but it cannot be destroyed. At most, it can be carved up into lesser estates and interests. At common law, as previously noted, the fee simple absolute was created by the formula to A and his heirs. This reflected the medieval innovation of a fee that could be passed from father to son by inheritance, as opposed to one that reverted back to the king on the death of the tenant. That formula still works, but in modern usage, it is sufficient to simply say to A and the use of such language in a conveyance from the owner of a fee simple absolute will be presumed to create a fee simple absolute in A. Note, however, that the traditional language creates no legal interest in anyone other than A. The words and his heirs are simply a legal formula that has been passed down over the centuries to indicate this particular type of estate. Remember, a living person has no heirs. And once A dies, A's property will pass by will or intestate succession. Now moving to the life estate. The life estate is just what it sounds like. An estate that confers a right to possession for the life of its owner. The owner of a life estate is referred to as a life tenant. The life estate terminates by operation of law upon the owner's death. That is, it ceases to exist. It is created by the following formula. To A for life. Because it must by definition end, any land held by a life tenant must also be subject to a future interest in some other person. Recall the legal principle of Nemo dat quad non habit, or Nemo dat for short, which we encountered in our discussion of good faith purchasers. A grantor cannot convey title 
to something she doesn't herself own. Following this principle, life estates are alienable inter vivos during the life of the life tenant, but obviously not divisible or descendable. They cease to exist upon the death of their owner, so the life tenant's estate has nothing to convey. Nemodat also implies that the owner of an interest in real property cannot convey more than their interest. A life tenant cannot convey a fee simple absolute, for example. More to the point, if a life tenant A transfers their life estate to a grantee B, B cannot receive anything more than what A owns. That is, a possessory estate that will terminate by operation of law when A dies. Because such an interest is measured by the life of someone other than its owner, it is called a life estate per autre vie, literally in French law, for another life. A life estate per autre vie can also be created explicitly as by a grant to A for the life of B. Now moving to the reversion. We encountered the reversion once before when discussing leases as an introduction to the concept of a future interest. But reversions often arise in non-leasehold contexts too. Consider what happens when A owning a life estate in Blackacre, dies. A's life estate terminates by operation of law. It simply ceases to exist and disappears. Who owns Blackacre now? It seems obvious that somebody must have a right to possession of the land. But it seems equally obvious that whoever that somebody is, they had no right to possession before a died. Whoever they are, during the term of A's life estate, they must have held an interest that would entitle them to take possession at some point in the future, that is, a future interest. There are two candidates for such an interest. We will begin with the most basic, the reversion. Suppose that O owning a fee-simple-absolute in Blackacre, conveys Blackacre to A for life and says nothing more. What is the legal effect of this grant? Based on the formula we just learned, it should be clear that A receives a life estate in Blackacre. But what other effects does the grant have on the legal rights of the parties? Think about the interest O held prior to the conveyance, a fee-simple-absolute. Remember that a fee-simple-absolute is an interest of infinite duration. It never ends. So when O starts with a possessory interest of infinite duration and then gives away a life estate, whose duration is limited by a human lifespan, to A, something was left over. Specifically, O never gave away the right to possession of Blackacre 
from the day of A's death to the end of time. Whether meaning to or not, O gave away less of an interest in Blackacre than what he owned, meaning he still holds some interest. We call this type of interest the residual interest left over when a grantor gives away less than they have, a retained interest. This retained interest can't entitle O to possession during A's life. A has the exclusive right to possession as a life tenant. So O's interest must be a future interest during the term of A's life estate, an interest that will entitle O to possession after the natural termination of the life estate. As we discussed in the example of the lease, we call this kind of future interest a reversion. It is a retained interest in the grantor, created when a grantor conveys less than his entire interest. That will become possessory by operation of law upon the natural termination of the preceding estate. Colloquially, we say that Blackacre reverts to O. In some opinions, you will see the holder of a reversion referred to as a reversioner. A reversion can, of course, also be created explicitly. For example, if O conveys Blackacre to A for life, then to O. Now moving to the remainder. A remainder is a type of future interest created in someone other than the grantor. The distinguishing characteristic of the remainder is that, like a reversion, it cannot cut short or divest any possessory or vested estate. A remainder simply remains, sitting around and waiting for the natural termination of the preceding possessory estate, be it a life estate or a lease, at which point the remainder will become possessory by operation of law. Suppose that O, owning a fee simple absolute in Blackacre, conveys Blackacre to A for life and then to B. Again, A would have a life estate, but now O has also affirmatively created a future interest in B. Because the future interest is created in someone other than the grantor, it isn't a reversion. And because it cannot cut short A's life estate, it must therefore be a remainder. Due to the persistence of gendered terms in legal discourse, you will often see the holder of a remainder referred to as a remainder man, even today regardless of that person's gender. Now discussing present versus future and the doctrine of waste. Even if we are very clear on the nature and allocation of possessory and future interests in a parcel of land, we soon run into a practical problem. It can be difficult to protect the value of a future interest while someone else is in possession of the land, acting for most purposes as its owner. 
What if a life tenant burns down the structures on the parcel or decides to undertake a remodeling project that would make the parcel less desirable to future renters or fails to do anything about a leaky pipe leading to a costly mold infestation? What if the possessor uses the property in such a way as to maximize its current value at the expense of its future value? like depleting natural resources, wearing out buildings and fixtures without repairing or maintaining them, in such ways that can't be recovered. Can it be wrongful, as a matter of property law, for a lawful possessor to use the possessed premises however they wish, for good or for ill? The common law recognizes that it could be wrongful for a present lawful possessor to take or fail to take certain acts with respect to land in their possession. If those acts affect the ability of a future possessor to enjoy their interest when their turn comes around. To vindicate the rights of these future interest holders, The common law gave them a private right of action to enjoin and obtain damages for the acts and omissions of possessors that permanently decrease the value of the future interest. This was an action for waste. Waste can either be voluntary or permissive. Voluntary waste, sometimes called affirmative waste, refers to acts of the holder of the possessory estate, such as erecting or demolishing a structure or extracting non-replenishing natural resources. Permissive waste refers to omissions of the holder of the possessory estate, such as failing to pay property taxes or failure to make needed repairs. Either can support a claim for waste by the owner of a future interest whose rights are permanently devalued as a result. What if instead doing something that decreases the value of the future interest, the holder of the possessory estate does something that increases the market value of the land, but in doing so changes the premises in ways the future interest holder doesn't like? Such alterations, known as ameliorative waste, have generated two types of approaches in the courts. The first approach, adopted in Melms v. Pabst Brewing Company, looks to the effects of the life tenant's actions on the market value of the parcel and whether those actions were necessitated by a change in conditions surrounding the parcel. In Melms, the Pabst Brewing Company had torn down an old mansion abutting a brewery it owned, mistakenly believed it owned the lot in fee simple, when in fact it owned only a life estate of the widow Melms, the remainder being owned by her children. At the time of the demolition, the neighborhood around the house had become heavily industrialized and had been regraded such that the house stood 20 to 30 feet above street level and was worthless as a residential property. 
In these circumstances, the court held whether the act of destroying the mansion and regrading the lot in which it stood to street level constitutes waste is a question of fact for the jury. The court suggested that such actions will not constitute waste when it clearly appears that the change will be, in effect, a meliorating change, which rather improves the inheritance than injures it. The second approach, more consistent with the common law roots of waste doctrine, holds that any material change to real property caused by a lawful possessor without the consent of the holder of the future interest is waste. This approach informed the decision of the New York Supreme Court in Brokaw v. Fairchild. In that case, the court refused to allow the life tenant of a stately mansion on New York's 5th Avenue at 79th Street to tear the mansion down over the objections of the holders of the future interests in the lot. Even though living in the mansion had become cost-prohibitive, and the neighborhood had become a prime location for luxury apartment buildings, which could be built and operated on the site for a substantial profit. The theory underlying this result is that a life tenant has merely the rights of use, not full rights of ownership, and that the holder of the future interest is entitled to take possession of the parcel in substantially the same condition as it existed at the time the future interest was created. Now moving to preserving marketability. As we saw in our discussion of estates and future interests, the common law gave property owners a fairly diverse and subtle array of tools to effectuate their intent regarding the use and disposition of their property. But this level of control raises serious potential for conflicts between the plans and wishes of the property owners of yesterday and the needs and desires of actual and aspiring property owners of today. The common law recognized that some property owners might try to dictate the disposition of property much farther into the future than could be justified by any legitimate interest or expertise they might have. As years pass, new generations undertake stewardship of resources and the economic, social, and cultural demands on those resources change with the times. Allowing long-dead property owners to dictate the disposition of those resources to the fourth, fifth, or sixth generation after they're gone, significantly limits the ability of the possessors of today to direct resources to uses appropriate to the age. The common law developed various doctrines designed to balance respect for property owners' wishes to provide for their families as they see fit with vigilance against the dangers of so-called dead-hand control. One powerful tool for striking this balance is the rule against perpetuities. We will not be studying the rule at any length here, but its classic formulation that an interest in property is void unless it necessarily will vest within 21 years 
of the end of a life in being at the time the interest is created, essentially operates to limit a property owner's control to one generation beyond the end of his own life. For example, a grant to John Thompson's great-great-great-great-great-grandchild would be clearly invalid under the rule against perpetuities. But a grant by John Thompson to his living daughter's yet unborn child would almost certainly be valid. Now moving to easements. What is an easement? Easements are interests in land. Unlike fee simple ownership, they are non-possessory. Rather, they allow the easement holder to use or control someone else's land. Suppose A owns Black Acre and B owns White Acre, which borders Black Acre. A would like to cross White Acre to reach Black Acre. She could ask B for permission to cross, but even if he says yes, permission can be revoked. B might also convey White Acre to a less welcoming owner. A may therefore wish to acquire a property interest that gives her an irrevocable right to cross over White Acre. If B conveys her this interest by sale or grant, A now owns an easement of access, which is a right to enter and cross through someone's land on the way to someplace else. Now moving to specific terminology of easements. Easements have different types. The first distinction is between affirmative and negative easements. An affirmative easement lets the owner do something on or affecting the land of another, known as the servient estate or servient tenement. The right is the benefit of the easement, and the obligation on the servient state is its burden. As noted above, a common affirmative easement is an easement of access, also known as an easement of way, which requires the owner of the servient estate to allow the easement holder to travel on the land to reach another location. In the example above, A has an affirmative easement to cross White Acre, the servient estate, to access Black Acre. A negative easement prohibits the owner of the servient estate from engaging in some action on the land. For example, if A has a solar panel on her property, she might acquire a solar easement from B that would prohibit the construction of any structures on White Acre that might block the sun from A's panel on Black Acre. Another distinction is between easements appurtenant and easements in gross. An easement appurtenant benefits another piece of land, a dominant estate. The owner of the dominant estate exercises the rights of the easement. If ownership of the dominant estate changes, the new owner exercises the powers of the easement. The prior owner retains no interest. 
So if A's easement to cross White Acre to reach Black Acre is an easement appurtenant, Black Acre is the dominant estate. If she conveys Black Acre to C, C becomes the owner of the easement. In an easement in gross, the easement benefits a specific person who exercises the rights of the easement rights regardless of land ownership. If A's easement to cross White Acre to reach Black Acre is an easement in gross, she keeps her easement even if she conveys Black Acre. In general, the presumption is in favor of an easement appurtenant over an easement in gross. Easements are part of the larger law of servitudes, which include real covenants and equitable servitudes. A servitude is a legal device that creates a right or obligation that runs with the land. A right runs with the land when it is enjoyed not only by its initial owner, but also by all successors to that owner's benefited property interest. A burden runs with the land when it binds not only its initial obligor, but also all successors to that obligor's burdened property interest. A servitude can be, among other things, an easement, profit, or covenant. Now moving to trusts and corporations. This section considers the two dominant forms of artificial entities that own and manage property, and often serve as substitutes for the more rigid system of estates, that is, trusts and corporations. So moving to trusts. A trust requires three people and one thing. The people are the settler who creates the trust, the trustee who holds legal title to the trust property and is responsible for following the settlor's instructions, and the beneficiary, who is entitled to receive distributions from the trust in accordance with the settler's instructions, but does not directly control it. The thing is the trust's property, or sometimes res, Latin for thing, or corpus, Latin for body, whose ownership is split between the trustee with legal title and the beneficiary with equitable title. And corporations. Corporate structure sharply distinguishes between two kinds of property. Corporate assets belong to the corporation. Corporate shares belong to the corporation's shareholders. They give the holders rights to share in the corporation's profits and to control the corporation's activities. So the shareholders own the corporation, which owns its assets. But the shareholders do not directly own or control the assets. Instead, in a business corporation, the shareholders elect a board of directors, which is responsible for operating the company. The board typically hires corporate officers and delegates day-to-day operations to them. 
but in theory it can take the reins when needed and must do so for major corporate activities like mergers. If shareholders do not like how the board of directors are running the corporation, their two options are to sell their shares if they can or to elect new directors if they can. Understanding this structure is crucial for understanding corporate law and the treatment of corporate property. Now moving to co-ownership and marital property. More than one person can own a thing at any given time. Their rights will be exclusive as against the world, but not exclusive as against each other. When conflicts between them develop, or when the outside world seeks to regulate their behavior, we need to understand the nature and limits of their rights. We will consider one type of co-ownership, that is joint tenancy. Joint tenancy in some jurisdictions called a joint tenancy with right of survivorship, an abbreviated JTWROS, is a form of ownership that can be unilaterally severed and turned into a tenancy in common. Its distinctive feature is the right of survivorship. If a joint tenancy is not severed before a joint tenant's death, that joint tenant's interest disappears and the remaining tenant continues to own an undivided interest, allowing the survivor to avoid probate. Thus, joint tenancy is most widely used today as a substitute for a will. In modern times, tenancy in common is preferred to other kinds of co-ownership. A conveyance to A and B therefore creates a tenancy in common by default, though it's relatively standard to include as tenants in common to avoid all uncertainty. The creation and continuation of a joint tenancy is beset with traps, even though it may well be most co-owners' preferred form of ownership for residential property. Some states have statutes that appear to abolish the joint tenancy, but they will often find joint tenancies with the right of survivorship if the intent to create them is clear enough. Creating a joint tenancy. The traditional test for the creation and continuation of a joint tenancy depended upon the presence of the four unities. One, time. The joint tenants' interests were all acquired at the same time. Two, title. The interests were all acquired by the same document or by joint adverse possession. Three, interest. The tenants' shares must all be equal and undivided. And four, possession. All joint tenants must have equal rights to possess the whole in the absence of an agreement to the contrary. A conveyance to A and B as joint tenants and not as tenants in common will create a joint tenancy in most states. Most states consider that this language confirms the grantor's intent. Joint alone might have been misunderstood by a lay person who thinks that tenants in common are joint owners in a general sense, though some states accept 
to A and B jointly as sufficient to create a joint tenancy. It is vitally important to consult your state's statutes and precedent before drafting a conveyance to more than one owner. The case James versus Taylor is an example of how the law can lay traps for the well-intended but poorly advised. The issue in the case was whether a deed conveyed property from a mother to her three children as tenants in common or as joint tenants. The Court of Appeals reversed an initial ruling that the conveyance created a joint tenancy. The deed named the three children jointly and severally and unto their heirs, assigns, and successors forever. And the mother retained a life estate. Two of the three children subsequently died, and then the mother died. Melba Taylor, the surviving child, sought a declaration that she was the sole owner, while the heirs of the other two children opposed her. Arkansas, like most states, provides that every shared interest in land shall be in tenancy in common unless expressly declared in the grant or devised to be a joint tenancy. The heirs argued that any ambiguity, therefore, pointed to a tenancy in common, whereas Taylor argued that her mother's intent to create a joint tenancy could be determined from the surrounding circumstances. The evidence of such intent was relatively strong. Taylor testified that her mother told her lawyer that she wanted the deed drafted so that, if one of her children died, the property would belong to the other two children, and so on. And that her mother was upset when she learned, just before her death, that there was a problem with the deed. In addition, after the first child died, the mother drafted a new will splitting her property between her two living children and giving nothing to the dead child's heirs. And the mother deleted the names of each dead child from bank accounts payable on death, leaving only Taylor's name. The Court of Appeals nonetheless held that the policy of the statute favoring tenancy in common unless a joint tenancy was expressly granted overrode any inquiry into the mother's intent. While the words joint tenancy didn't need to be used, some intent to convey a survivorship estate needed to appear in the grant. The words jointly and severally were insufficient, contradictory, and therefore meaningless in the context of estates. Severance of a Joint Tenancy Severance is any act that destroys one or more of the four unities required to maintain a joint tenancy. The legal consequence of severance is that the joint tenancy is converted to a tenancy in common. For those rare joint tenancies involving three or more joint tenants, one joint tenant may sever the joint tenancy as to his interest but the others maintain joint tenants with each other. The traditional rule for severance required either that all the tenants expressly agree to hold as tenants in common, 
or that one of the tenants convey to a third person in order to destroy the unities, particularly the unities of time and title, to turn a joint tenancy into a tenancy in common. Now moving to leasing real property. The law of landlord-tenant is the law of strangers, strangers who often have little in common and may never interact after the lease terminates. We will discuss the types of leaseholds, tenant, selection, transferring leases, ending leases, and the various rights and responsibilities of tenants and landlords during the course of the lease. The dual nature of the lease. In its simplest form, the lease is a transfer in which the owner of real property conveys exclusive possession to a tenant, generally in exchange for rent. Like other contracts, a lease's terms can be negotiated and they explicitly govern many of the rights and responsibilities of the parties involved. So why then are leases discussed in the property course rather than contracts? The short response is that a lease is a property contract hybrid. While it is surely a contract, it's a contract for a particular kind of property interest. The fuller answer lies in the history of feudal land law. Under the traditional common law, a leasehold was understood primarily as a property interest. A lord, often a baron, conveyed a possessory right to a tenant and retained for himself a future interest, typically a reversion. Importantly, once the landlord transferred the right to possession, he had few other obligations to the tenant. This basic model survived until the 1960s, when many jurisdictions began to introduce general contract law principles, that is, the implied duty of good faith and fair dealing, into the law of landlord-tenant. Importing contract theories into the lease has had two practical effects. First, parties to a lease now have the option to terminate in the case of any material breach. In the past, tenants could only terminate if the landlord interfered with their possession. Second, modern tenants have far more protections from indifferent and unscrupulous landlords than their counterparts 50 years ago. Courts and legislatures have proven particularly eager to help residential tenants, whom they view as vulnerable. Creating a leasehold A lease is a transfer of the right of possession of specific property for a limited period of time. It's important to see that not all legal relationships that grant the use of an owner's property qualify as leaseholds. To determine whether parties have created a leasehold or some other legal interest, courts have traditionally focused on whether a grantor has turned over exclusive possession or a more limited set of use rights. Types of leaseholds. As we have seen, property interests come in a limited number of forms. 
many of which we have inherited directly from feudal England. This theme holds in landlord-tenant. The common law developed three types of leaseholds that our modern property system still recognizes. The term of years, the periodic tenancy, and the tenancy at will. The term of years is a leasehold measured by any fixed period of time. The most familiar term of years lease is the residential one-year lease. The actual term, however, may vary greatly. In 2001, the U.S. government signed a 99-year lease for an embassy in Singapore. Leases of hundreds or even thousands of years are not unheard of either. At the other end of the spectrum, vacation properties like beach condos and lake houses commonly rent for one-week periods. The periodic tenancy is a lease for some fixed duration that automatically renews for succeeding periods until either the landlord or tenant gives notice of termination. This automatic renewal is the chief practical difference between the periodic tenancy and the term of years. The most common type of periodic tenancy is the month-to-month lease. As the name suggests, a month-to-month lease lasts for a month and then continues for subsequent months until either the landlord or tenant ends the lease. Periodic tenancies have no certain end date. Some residential tenants with month-to-month leases stay in their apartments for decades. The tenancy at will has no fixed duration and endures so long as both of the parties desire. For example, if the landlord and tenant sign a document that reads, tenant will pay the landlord $500 on the first of the month, and the lease will endure as long as both of us wish. They have created a tenancy at will. Under the common law, either party could end such a lease at any moment. Today, most states have enacted statutes that establish minimum notice periods. 30 days is common. Tenancies at will also terminate if the landlord sells the property, the tenant abandons the unit, or either party dies. Now moving to the problem of holdovers and the tenancy at sufferance. Imagine that you own a small apartment building in a college town. At the end of the school year, one of your tenants refuses to move out. The law refers to such tenants as holdovers. When a tenant stays in possession after the lease has expired, the law allows the landlord to make a one-time election. The landlord has the option to treat the holdover as a trespasser, bringing an eviction proceeding, and sue for damages. Alternatively, the landlord may renew the holdover's lease for another term. This second option is typically referred to as a tenancy at sufferance. Some hornbooks list the tenancy at sufferance as a fourth type of common law leasehold. The tenancy at sufferance, however, 
is not based on any affirmative agreement between the parties and is probably better understood as a remedy for wrongful occupancy. Moving to delivering possession. Holdovers can also cause problems for other renters. Suppose that before the start of law school, you agree to a one-year lease that begins on August 1st. Although you've signed a binding lease agreement and have received a set of keys, on move-in day, you find that the previous tenant hasn't left your apartment. If the lease doesn't include a contingency for such an event, what are your rights? U.S. jurisdictions remain split over the landlord's duty to provide possession. A majority of jurisdictions now follow the English rule, but the American rule remains alive and well. Under the English view, the tenant may terminate the lease and sue the landlord for damages. The tenant can also choose to withhold payment from the landlord until the tenant is able to take possession. In contrast, under the American rule, the tenant must bring an eviction action directly against the holdover. Exiting a lease Most leases expire either at the end of the agreed-upon term or when one party serves the other with notice that they've decided not to renew for another period. Sometimes, however, either a tenant or landlord seeks to get out of the lease before the negotiated term concludes. For example, a new job in a faraway state, a family emergency, or business failure can all change a tenant's needs or ability to pay the rent. We turn now to the legal consequences of exiting a lease. Landlord exit by transfer. Landlords may sell their properties to third parties at any time. The law categorizes a landlord's interest in rented property as a reversion, and like most other property interests, the landlord's reversion is fully alienable. As a default rule, when a landlord sells his interest, the purchaser takes subject to any leases. If there are tenants with unexpired terms of years leases, for example, the new landlord cannot evict them. Conversely, the tenants must continue to pay the agreed-upon rent to the new owner. If the lease is a periodic tenancy or tenancy at will, the new landlord may end the leasehold by providing the tenant with the required notice. Until then, the leases continue unabated. Tenant exit by transfer. Tenants have exit options too. The default rule is that a tenant's interest in a term of years lease or periodic tenancy is also freely transferable. The law recognizes two types of transfer, the assignment and the sublease. The vast majority of jurisdictions use an objective test to distinguish the two. In an assignment, the original tenant transfers all of the remaining interests under the lease to a new tenant. In a sublease, on the other hand, the original tenant transfers less than all of her remaining rights in the unexpired period. The original tenant either gets the unit back at the end of the sublease 
or reserves a right to cut the sublease short. Most leases contain some restriction on a tenant's ability to assign or sublease her property interests. In most states, courts uphold such bars on transfer as reasonable restraints on alienation. More controversial are clauses that allow sublease or assignment, but only with the consent of the landlord. Tenant exit by abandonment and the duty to mitigate. A tenant who needs to exit a lease early and cannot find another party to sublet must seek out other alternatives. For example, a tenant can always ask her landlord to terminate the lease before the term ends. The tenant generally agrees to turn over the property and pays a small fee and, in return, the landlord releases the tenant from all further obligations. This is called a surrender. Alternatively, a tenant may abandon the premise and stop making rent payments. This often happens if a tenant cannot work out a surrender agreement or finds herself in desperate financial circumstances. In this situation, almost all states impose a duty to mitigate on residential landlords. Importantly, the duty to mitigate does not relieve an abandoning tenant of all liability. Even if a new tenant rents the unit, the landlord can still recover damages for all of the costs of finding the replacement tenant and for any time that the unit remained empty. The landlord can also recoup any unpaid rent that accrued before the abandonment. Finally, if the rental market in the area has softened and the landlord is forced to rent the unit at a lower price, the tenant is responsible for the difference between the new rent and the original rent. And finally, tenant exit by eviction. If a tenant fails to pay rent or otherwise commits a material breach of the lease, the landlord can elect to terminate the leasehold and evict the tenant from the property. Now moving to the covenant of quiet enjoyment. Traditional common law principles do not leave renters completely defenseless against unprincipled landlords. Every lease, whether residential or commercial, contains a covenant of quiet enjoyment. Often this promise is explicitly stated in the lease contract. Where it's not specifically mentioned, all courts will imply it into the agreement. The basic idea is that the landlord cannot interfere with the tenant's use of the property. Most courts state the legal test this way. A breach of the covenant of quiet enjoyment occurs when the landlord substantially interferes with the tenant's use or enjoyment of the premises. To determine whether the interference is substantial, courts generally consider the purpose the premises are leased for, the foreseeability of the problem, the potential duration, and the degree of harm. The difficult conceptual issue with the covenant of quiet enjoyment concerns the remedy. If the landlord breaks the covenant, what are the tenant's options? After a breach, the tenant can always choose to stay in the leased property, continue to pay rent, and sue the landlord for damages. 
Additionally, certain violations of the covenant of quiet enjoyment allow the tenant to consider the lease terminated, leave, and stop paying rent. Now moving to the implied warranty of habitability. Although the covenant of quiet enjoyment offers tenants some protections, the doctrine, without more, can leave renters exposed to dreadful living conditions. In short, the implied warranty of habitability imposes a duty on landlords to provide residential tenants with a clean, safe, and habitable living space. And finally, the landlord's tort liability. A landlord's responsibility for injuries sustained on the leased premises has dramatically expanded in the last 50 years. As previously discussed, under the traditional common law rule, the tenant had the duty to undertake all repairs and maintenance on the rented property. As a result, the law absolved landlords from liability for injuries sustained because of dangerous conditions in the unit. The cost of damage to both property and persons sustained from dangerous conditions fell squarely on tenants. Almost every jurisdiction now imposes greater duties on landlords. At the very least, landlords must exercise reasonable care in keeping common areas safe, use reasonable care when making repairs, and warn tenants about latent defects, unsafe conditions that would not be obvious upon an inspection. Other jurisdictions reason that since the landlord now has a duty to provide tenants and their guests with safe and clean premises, a failure to comply with this obligation may amount to negligence. The basic rule in these states is that a landlord must take reasonable steps to repair defects of which the landlord becomes aware. Failure to comply exposes landlords to liability for injuries that results from the defective conditions. Landlords sometimes attempt to avoid the obligation to repair by inserting into the lease a clause stating that the lessor is not responsible for personal injury or property damage that occurs on the premise. While such exculpatory clauses are typically upheld in commercial settings, courts increasingly strike them from residential leases as violations of public policy. Thanks, everybody. That's all I'd like to talk about in this lecture. Take care.